I think my worth mm -hmm. has been caught up in my accomplishments, whether that is physical, like accolades, but also like my self-care, my healing journey, like not even attaching myself so much to that as mile markers of how mm -hmm. good I am. Because what happens when I'm doing so, so good and then a wave of depression comes and it like kind of rocks my world a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, right. what happens then? Am I still worthy? Welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire you to accept the skin you're in and step into your most whole, powerful self. I'm Lily Mandelbaum, and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind, and we are the creators of Style Like You. In our podcast, we bring you the extended interviews from our video series, The What's Underneath Project, in which diverse role models strip down to open up and claim the power of the skin they're in. The first step to self-acceptance is being radically honest about the things you're ashamed of, and by listening to these stories, you are tapping into the healing power of vulnerability, truth sharing, and the unshakable bravery to be yourself. You are giving yourself permission to recognize that you are completely beautiful and enough as you are. In honor of pride, this week's episode of What's Underneath is made possible with the support of Spring Health. Spring Health is breaking barriers to mental health by providing employers with a comprehensive and effective solution to employee mental well-being. Follow us on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health to learn more about our partnership and how you can join in on our mental health awareness campaign. Hey everyone. Hi everyone. Hope you're all doing well. Lily and I were just talking a little bit about this moment in time right now with, you know, things opening up again, at least where we are in California and how strange it is and how in a certain way things were simpler, never leaving the house and how, you know, we just feel we're different people and what kind of people are we now and how do we take the steps forward uh, in a way that represents and expresses who we've become after this year and the intensity of what we have all gone through between COVID and between George Floyd. The two things I feel have changed us all permanently and it's really, you know, such a time to reassess who we are as people and how we want to proceed in the future so that we can actually have a whole and connected and loving and just society. You know, more than ever, I just feel so much more in touch with what feels genuinely good to me and what, what relationships feel good, what work partnerships feel good. There's like so much more acutely aware of when things feel aligned and when things feel misaligned and when things feel like they're authentic to who I am in my path and like wanting to enter the new world like in that authenticity and I think that there's going to be a lot of shifts and a lot of uncomfortable shifts and a lot of like letting go and things falling off but also like new amazing things emerging and like potentially hopefully a lot of people like walking in their truth more and walking in their power more and like creating a new world from that place and I think that really relates a lot to the story of this week's What's Underneath guest, Suni Reed. They are gender nonconforming musical theater actor. They have been in Hamilton, the Broadway musical, for a number of years. They were in it in New York on Broadway and then in Chicago before the pandemic. And then when 
the pandemic hit, they had just moved to LA and were about to be part of the LA cast. And then obviously that got shut down and they had this whole year of just, you know, soul searching and being with themselves. And now they're re-emerging, going back to be in Hamilton as it reopens here in LA and they're really re-emerging a new person and a much more powerful strong version of themselves they have had like a lifelong struggle with body image they were considered morbidly obese since they were a little kid and had a huge struggle their whole life with their body image and when they got cast in Hamilton the first time they were knee deep in an eating disorder and were the skinniest that they had ever been and still felt like like the fattest person in the show and had imposter syndrome didn't believe that they were worthy of being in the show because of that feeling and struggled with that and 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 but they're at this incredible place right now where they're you know just kind of trying to learn what their body like authentically wants to be like and they're kind of stepping into their authentic gender and body and trying to feel what it's like to not be subject to all these standards and really just feel into what's right for them and they're nervous about going back to Hamilton because they're not sure you know that they're, they're not who Hamilton hired originally at, at least as far as their weight and gender goes and they're nervous about it but also excited to like step into their power and they, they have just come as they are and not and not and not suppress and, and yeah. not suppress any part of them to do whatever is necessary in their lives in terms of their career respecting fully their body and their race and their gender and everything that they are naturally and they are now unwilling to sacrifice Even anything about themselves no matter the dream for SUNY the dream of dreams was to be on Broadway and it became right out of school at 22 years old right at the end of being in a school that was a channel towards Broadway and acting and singing and even though this has been the dream of their lives they are not willing to toss any of themselves away for anything that's outside of themselves and that's I think very much the moment that we're all in right now because the decisions that we make as individuals are very much going to shape the society and are going to determine what our society becomes and whether we literally can survive and coexist and sustain because to continue with you know the quote-unquote normal or as things were before is really not sustainable and I believe that this past year has brought that to the surface very clearly so it's going to take a lot of introspection and a lot of facing ourselves in very clear ways and 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 it's going to take a lot of bravery to not fall back into these old fears and stepping into you know your truth and stepping more into the gift that you've been giving the light and the life force that you've been given and really embracing that and really analyzing and trying to understand who you are and what your purpose genuinely is and you know the question is is it these external markers is it these things that we've been told that make ourselves okay or is it something that you just intuitively and instinctually know is okay with you and does doesn't have to be okay with anybody else. And that's really what's going to make an entirely different society and world a much more loving one of ourselves and who we are as unrepeatable people, as individuals, and also as people who are completely connected and our behavior and every choice that we make and thought that we make has something to do with our environment, has something to do with the food chain, has something to do with our health and affects each other deeply. Yeah, so SUNY is so incredibly inspiring and we're very, very excited for you to hear their story and to reflect back on how this affects you and your stepping into your truth and into your life force and into your light. Hope you enjoy. 
So much love to you all. And we really appreciate you coming and listening to our podcast and keep coming back because without you, we, we wouldn't be here. So lots of love to you all. Can you just start by talking about how you're feeling right now? How am I feeling right now? My stomach has a little knot in it. It's not a big knot, but a little knot. My hands are a little sweaty. But yeah, I just get nervous about speaking. Mm-hmm. So a little nervous. But I have a smile on my face so I can feel the excitement. Why nervous to speak? Oof. Yeah, meeting new people is a little tricky for me. I just get a little, a little anxious of how I'm being perceived. Wanting to be, to show up open and ready to just share, but also wanting to maintain control. And those two things are kind of opposing. To be a performer and have such like social anxiety and to also be so like, like also I have stage fright. I remember like um, my dad always shows people this video of me in first grade. I was in this play called Once Upon a Lily Pad and it was my first play. And I had like one little song, like each class got to sing a song and it was, the song was called Listen to Your Parents and this, there's like a slow pan in this video going left to right and I'm all the way at the end and I'm just like crying. Sobbing, singing, listen to your parents, listen and obey. I've always had this like anxiety of people seeing me, how people are seeing me. Mm -hmm. Just to jump in, it feels like it's about safety a lot of times. Like how somebody perceives me, you know, that Mm -hmm. correlates with how safe I feel. Mm -hmm. Thinking about like who's in the room, like I, how I show up in a space full of black people is going to be a little different than how I show up in a space where I may be the only black person in this space. I grew up kind of in in spaces where there weren't necessarily a lot of black people all the time. So feeling the pressure of like representing a race of people sometimes and also feeling the responsibility of some of the white people around me. Like growing up, if I was somebody's only black friend, I was like, damn. I got I got must have to teach you something, you know? Mm-hmm. I must have to really like lead by example, I guess, but also mm-hmm. I don't want to oof, that was oof. the fear of playing into the stereotypes of black people that already exist was so heavy on me as a young person, and I think as I kind of mature and and grow into myself, um a lot of that has like shaken off, but it's still there. It's something that I still work with of like you know, code switching. You know about you know yeah. code switching? Like, mm-hmm. I don't love code switching, but it's a way of conforming. Mm-hmm. But it's also, again, when we talk about safety, it's like, that's how you keep yourself safe. You mm-hmm. gotta blend in. Mm-hmm. This, this uh, like, double consciousness of, like, me showing up, but then there's this other voice of me, like, judging myself and wondering how, like, trying to get into your head while mm-hmm. I'm in my mm-hmm. head. Maybe I should just smile. Maybe I should just tell a joke. You know, like, mm-hmm. just all the different tactics I use to, like, mitigate this underbelly of fear when I'm trying to just be. There's just, like, yeah. mm-hmm. something boiling underneath. That's the messaging that mm-hmm. I received as, like, this is how you have to be in the world. Like, during my fundamental years, right? Like, when you're, like, when your brain is literally developing. Mm-hmm. But it's also, like... I started to think about where did that messaging come from, right? Like, did it come from my parents? Did it come from school? Did it come from TV? And a lot of times I'm just like, it came from all of that. 
I'm getting more comfortable acknowledging my um, self-sabotaging behavior. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I think, I think I've blamed my anxiety for not showing up to things. Mm. I want to arrive at a place where I just show up no matter who's there. I feel comf confident and comfortable showing up as myself. I think a lot of that to me comes down to like, even just wearing a dress, you know? Like even just like coming down to what I'm going to mm -hmm. put on my body today and how is that going to affect the day that I'm going to have. Even the thoughts that are self-sabotaging, even the thoughts that, that are like negative, the negative self-talk, at some point that those thoughts were of service, like they were doing mm -hmm. something for me. You know, they were keeping me maybe in a comfort zone that was like where I needed to be. And those self-sabotaging self thoughts that held me back from doing things Maybe I wasn't ready to do those things yet, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about what your style says about you? I think I am giving comfy, cozy, auntie chic. Mm. <laughs> I remember the first time I put on my mom's jeans. <laughs> I'm, like, so I'm like a little bit embarrassed about it. <laughs> I used to be in my mom's closet, like taking her little jeans because <laughs> I had, you know, as a bigger person, my mom's a plus size woman, mm. so, you know, mm. the little spandex, I was like, oh, okay, they don't have the spandex <laughs> in men's jeans. And as a young person, oh. I was like at the Big and Tall in Macy's and the Big and Tall in Old Navy, and they got like big ass boot cut, you know, they, it's not giving shape, it's not giving like, you can't like style a boot cut jean from Old Navy really, you know? Mm -hmm. So I got into my mom's closet and I took her little jeans that had the little uh, spandex in them. I pulled them up real high. So I got my styles all, you know, together. My, my style really came from <laughs> plus size women, that, the plus size women that raised me. Like my mom looking at my, like even my head wrap, like wearing my head, my um, hair wrap like this. Like my aunt taught me how to do this. Mm. Can you talk about, um assumptions that people make about you based on your appearance? Depending on how I'm presenting, I feel like I get different reactions from the public. Sometimes I worry about people being intimidated by me by my because of my stature. Like, I worry that people see this big black person and that they will get nervous or that they will get scared. So I think, literally, again, talking about safety, like, if, if I'm someplace and a white woman is scared, that could be my neck, mm. you know? Like, on, like a, and some, on some real shit. Like, taking responsibility for other people's perception of me in that way, in regards of, like, safety. Mm. I got the cops called to me as a little kid mm. in, a, in a playground. Like, there's this place, um, this little park across the street from my house called the Tot Lot. And it was like, it was the top lot because it was literally a little, little park. The little suburb that I grew up in was called Ardmore. Um, and it was in a bigger cluster of suburbs called the Main Line outside of Philly. But Ardmore was where like a lot of the black folks lived. So people would always call it Hardmore. And my, I remember I used to talk to my dad about it. He used to be so pissed because here is this, this black man, this successful doctor who has made it out of the city and moved to the suburbs mm. so that his kids can have, you know, a better life, you know. 
And my mom too, a pharmacist, both working professionals who like moved to the suburbs for this dream so that they could kind of crawl up the ladder of mm -hmm. capitalism and white supremacy as you do, you know? Mm -hmm. And the, we used to go to the tot lot because that's the park where we used to all hang out. And there was this white lady who, who lived next door. She used to just give us a hard time. Like little black kids playing in the park, she used to always come over and like yell at us, telling, telling us we were being too loud. One time she called the cops on us. Some people stayed to like fight. Like people were like, call the cops, do what you need to do. We'll get here when the cops get here. And I was gone, like I just left. I did not have, at that moment, I did not have an interaction with the police. Mm -hmm. But the fact that she would come out and threaten us, like threaten little kids by saying, I'm going to call the police on you, is just so sick. But I think that is, is an example of me learning to take responsibility for the way people perceive mm -hmm. me. My science teacher in middle school, she literally told my mom, I have a different set of rules for them. Talking about me, the black student. Like, what does that mean? Sometimes I amplify my femininity mm. in spaces or amplify my like softness mm. and like shun my like hard exterior, mm. my like, not even that my exterior is always hard, but shed the like tough parts of me. I used to work at Lululemon and my friends would come in. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> my friends would come no. in and they would be like, the show you were putting on for these white ladies uh. is wild. Because I'd be, I'd be walking around like, hey, what, si what size are you? You need a size six? Okay, coming up. You know, like, and I just remember being like, okay, we about to get this check. Yeah. You know, somebody, somebody came to see me um, as Burr in Hamilton and they said to me after, after my performance, they were like, that performance was chameleonic. Mm. And I was like, chameleonic? <laughs> like a chameleon? Hmm. And I just started, you know, sitting with that and I was like, I felt so like that was such a compliment to me mm. and so affirming. Something about that was so affirming because I, I felt that about me being able to like blend mm. into any space. Right. Like being able to contort myself to anything, mm. to get by in any space. Like I firmly believe I can truly talk to anybody. Like mm. people, even people that may not, you know, have the same opinions as me. That frame, right? Looking at that as a skill, that tool of mine, hasn't always come easy. A lot of times I've thought of it as, oh, I'm fake or I'm not authentic. I'm not being myself, I'm not, you know, like mm -hmm. feeling bad for going into Lululemon and putting on a show for these mm -hmm. white ladies and collecting my check. Mm -hmm. Am I fake or am I actually just surviving and doing what I need to do? Or mm -hmm. am I also just doing actually what I was taught to do? I didn't just make up these rules, didn't ask for it, nor am I the first person to do it. It's actually a shame that code switching is even something that still exists in, in our culture as a human race. Mm -hmm. Are there times that you feel you have to amp down your femininity? Yes, when I go to the barbershop. I don't even really go to the barbershop anymore, truly, because I've, I've, it just feels so uncomfortable because the barbershop is a very interesting place. You, as a black person, I'm not going to go to a white hair salon to get my hair done. I'm not going to go to a white barbershop, so I need to go to the black barbershop. But the black barbershop is full of black men. Even just saying that makes me feel so bad that I, and like mm. have these reservations about being in spaces that where straight black men come together. 
But then it's like, anybody on the outside looking at me would be like, oh, it makes sense that you feel weird about that. Mm -hmm. But then it's like, why is that? Like, I'm really transparent on Instagram. I try to be, I try to talk about things and race relations and social stuff. And I try to talk about shit that's hard. But then sometimes I'm like, mm, some things need to be handled at the house amongst the people it involves, you know? And the conversation about barbershops, I feel like there's just, there's a bigger conversation that I would like to have with cis hetero black men in community. Mm -hmm. Right, and they're just, at the end of the day, cis men in general, and like they are also victims of the patriarchy and, their, and, and of the norms. Exactly. I've talked about this, the, the, um, like if we went around the room and said, how many times have you seen a white man yelling in public? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like how many people would have a story to be like, oh, well, one time I saw this white man yelling at the mm. grocery store. One time I saw this. How many times have you seen a black man yelling at somebody in public and it didn't end in like a viral video on the internet? <laughs> like mm. why is it that white men are the only people allowed to be rageful? <laughs> Like, and it's like, it's like acceptable, like truly, truly acceptable. How many times have we seen a white man being rageful and then a white woman being like, oh, he's just like that. Mm -hmm. I am actually entitled to have a fucking attitude. Mm -hmm. Based on the way I am treated in this world, based on what I have to expect, mm -hmm. based on the work I have to do to get myself together every day, I actually deserve to have a fucking attitude. I've shied away from my rage because as a kid, I also had a really bad temper. I used to get in trouble all the time because people would say stuff to me and I would lose my mind. Mm. I would just start cursing people out at school <laughs> because I, as a young person, I did not have the tools to say, to communicate like, oh, you said this and I felt like you were actually discriminating against me. Mm -hmm. For someone to tell you that the thing you experienced is not, is not true. Not happening. Like no. I've actually had, so I've engaged, <laughs> Forgive me, ancestors. I've engaged with so many white men playing devil's advocate of, about my experience, about my lived truth. It's like interesting, I, I like, am so weary of talking about the fact that I changed my name, right? Yeah. Like, because I have such a hard time with getting it to stick with people that have known me for a long time, yeah. that I have a hard time even engaging with the topic of the journey of how I changed my name and what it means and all mm -hmm. that. But my dad named me after him, and he jokingly would be like, I named you this because that way nobody will know you're black. They won't know when you call, when you call on an interview, you put your name on an interview, mm. they won't know. You yeah. might as well be Bob or Bill or Sam, mm. other white names, you know, like, and that transfers to gender to me. Pronouns. Is it not the same exact thing? Mm -hmm. It's the Some, same exact thing. I came out of my mother in the hospital. Somebody looked at my body and said, oh, you're that. What the hell? Right. That doesn't even make sense. What would it what would it be like? Walk with me. What would it be like <laughs> if you were given a gender at birth, right? As it, as they do now cuz you know the people always like to say, well, change is going to happen overnight. You you know, you got to be patient, whatever. <laughs> what if the the baby step was Okay, you know how you have a sweet 16, you know how you have a bat mitzvah or whatever. What if y'all sit down and say, does this still work for you? You know, does this name still work for you? Do these pronouns still work for you? If as a young person, if I didn't have to be making these decisions or thinking about these things by myself at 26, if these conversations that I'm having about exploring my gender, exploring my presentation, 
Like, what if those conversations were happening at home with my family in a sa in the safety of my home, mm -hmm. as opposed to like me in LA by myself years later later trying to figure it out. Later. So can you talk about what has been your biggest struggle? I've struggled with my, my self-worth. I've struggled with my body image. I've struggled with my eating, my emotional like facility, my capacity to engage with my emotions hmm. has hmm. been a struggle. Hmm. Um, both on either spectrums, right? Like of being so deep in my trauma that I actually can't function mm. and being so mm. disconnected from it that I'm not present anywhere because I'm literally just floating around doing whatever, mm -hmm. surviving, mm -hmm. you know? Or also, even if I'm not dissociating, making myself so busy that I don't even have time to Be think old. about anything mm -hmm. but how busy and exhausted I am. Is there like a thing that you're kind of like trying to like not have to feel or face? The thing that I'm avoiding is the belief that I am actually beautiful mm. and that I am actually talented, actually, and not in comparison to someone else, not in comparison, not even in comparison to myself, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm not, I'm not more worthy or more valuable because of the things I have been able to do. If I never change, ever, if I'm never able to be less anxious, if I'm never able to make the money I wanna make, if I'm never able to do the things that I see myself doing, am I actually, will I actually still be able to lay my head on my pillow at night and know that I'm worthy of just being, right? Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. I think my worth mm -hmm. has been caught up in my accomplishments, whether that is physical, like accolades, but also like, oh my goodness, like I'm, I'm going to therapy, I'm doing this treatment, I'm going to, you know, like my self-care, my healing journey, like not even attaching myself so much to that as mile markers of how mm -hmm. good I am. Because what happens when I'm doing so, so good, all, like my life is great, I'm successful, I'm working, and then a wave of depression comes and it like kind of rocks my world a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, right. what happens then? Can I still feel worthy if mm -hmm. I cannot be as productive as I know I can be, or I cannot be as creative as I know that I have, have that I can be? Am I still, worthy. Mm -hmm. I think also another struggle of like how that plays into how I exist in relationship with people is the relationship insecurities and the relationship anxieties. Just And when I say relationship, I don't mean like intimate partner. I mean like friends even. Mm -hmm. Like wondering, just like, am I enough for you to be your friend? Mm -hmm. Or am I too much for you to be your friend? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, Wondering if my anxiety or my depression is, is like a burden or something. A burden. Mm -hmm. When I started working in Hamilton, I was 22 years old and I just graduated college. Mm. And I talk about this all the time because it is, it is still just a wild story. Mm. Like just that alone I think is very wild. Mm. Wild. So you're in New York and you're studying acting? Mm -hmm. I was studying musical theater. Musical theater. Um, and auditioning all the time. Auditioning of? from the minute I got there. Mm -hmm. Because I, I didn't want to go, <laughs> I told you I had a hard time in school. I did not want to go to college at all. I did not want to go to college at all. Mm -hmm. I wanted to work, I wanted to be in theater. And also, this plan to go to college for musical theater was like, 
gifted to me from a mentor of mine. So I just had eyes on the prize of like, I'm going to New York, I'm doing a thing. I got my audition for Hamilton from my senior showcase at Pace. Mm. Um, six months later, I started working. It was two years after the show had opened. So it was still like hot, cause it's still hot now, but it was like not, you know, like mm. Beyonce had already seen it. <laughs> People had already been replaced, let's say that. Like the cast had yeah. already been changed over. I was not in the original Broadway company. I was a replacement for somebody mm -hmm. that was leaving. So even my rehearsal process was alone. Like I learned the show by myself in a studio with, you know, the team, with the with the mm -hmm. associate choreographer. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it was just me and her in a room. That yeah. must have been such an intense experience. <laughs> oh my, talk about a challenge. Oh my God. Again, worth of like, I'm not supposed to be here. That's the whole, that's what I was thinking the whole time. I was like, I am not this. I am not this. I just knew, I was like, I don't know, I don't know. When and you got the job, were you like ecstatic or were yeah, you? Yeah, I was, I was, Shocked. baby, I was running around New York City. Like, I'm on Broadway, y'all, I'm on Broadway. <laughs> like I was, there's, yeah. Wow. I did not stop saying I'm on Broadway for like six months. <laughs> I was walking around, I was telling strangers on the subway. Like, I'm telling you, I, I, if I could tell you I was going to be on Broadway, I was telling you. Like, I was on the subway like, sis, can I tell you something? <laughs> like, I'm about to be on Broadway. You know, and it's like, oh for, for me, and it was- the show on Broadway. That's, that's what I was going to say. It was like, it's funny because it is, Hamilton is not just a Broadway musical. No. It's not like a regular, regular, like, you know. I had never seen people care about Broadway so much. Mm -hmm. Seriously. Like, Never. So the fact that I was gonna be in the room, like, bitch. I was like, what's going on? And also like, I had seen, so I, I was a Hamilton fan. I think I saw it twice. My friend won the lottery the first time. So the first time I saw it, I was front row. Leslie Odom Jr. is sweating on me. I'm like, girl, this is, we, we have arrived. And then the second time I saw it, my friend, had gotten tickets or somehow we got to stand in standing room. And I literally got in trouble for being like for being too loud in the <laughs> background. Like I was back there singing all the words, like getting into it, and the usher came back and was like, Can y'all keep it down? And I was like, wow. So I was very I was very just shocked. I could not believe it. But I but at the same time I was not shocked at all because I the way I was manifesting the way I was meditating and praying and rehearsing, like I told you I worked at Lululemon. I was at Lululemon with my headphones on, like in the back room, like I am not throwing away my shot. Hey yo, I'm just, you know, just learning the lyrics in the back room, like figuring it out. I literally started asking for inventory shifts so that I could go downstairs in the basement and play Hamilton over the speakers. Mm, wow. So people would come downstairs and it would just be me over folding Lululemon. <laughs> Just in character, and they were coming back. Hey, what do you need? <laughs> like just playing the role, chameleonic. That's why I was just like, oh, uh -huh. okay, this is a special skill. It is. Got it. Just out here surviving. And what? As a kid, were you like encouraged? Like, was this part of you yourself encouraged by your parents? Like the musical theater and mm -hmm. all that. Yeah. I told you my first play was in first grade. Mm -hmm. Crying. Listen to your parents. I was, that wasn't like my big break. Mm -hmm. It was just like, oh, you like to be in plays. 
I, my cousins and I would always like go in the basement and make up dances and come upstairs and show them to the family and I would always cry. Like ask anybody in my family, like I was downstairs in the basement playing choreographer. And then as soon as we would get upstairs, I would just start crying. Like I would just be so overwhelmed like, oh no, they're looking at us, what's going to happen? I would just be crying, like full crying. Like, and it's, it, I'm telling you the stage fright is deep. It's just people have been people have been telling me how special I am since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, like. And were you getting like bullied to not be this way in school, like mm -hmm. to be to dim? They, the boys on the football team. Oh, I also play football. We don't need to talk about that, but we can. <laughs> I <laughs> I was on the football team freshman year of high school. Some of the senior boys they called me a fairy. You mm. know, they were talking shit. They didn't really, you know. But at the same time, I was also hooking up with a lot of the straight boys. I was not like out. There was another, there was one, I think there was one other gay person mm -hmm. in high school. Mm -hmm. um, and I was not that out person like going in. I think I, I think I came out maybe sophomore year. Like I came out very slowly mm -hmm. to individuals like trust this friend. And then I trust, you know, like I was very slow. Mm -hmm. So it was confusing because I would, be like bullied by some of the seniors on the football team and some of the some of the black boys like mm -hmm. like for being fat for being too femme, mm -hmm. um, and I got made fun of for just wearing kind of weird stuff. Like I remember I had I wore cowboy boots a lot in high school because I had to wear them for a play and I liked the way the heels sounded on the floor mm -hmm. in the in the high school. Mm -hmm. Like I just liked the fact that it's when like I was yeah. baby, people knew I was coming. Yeah. You could hear. <laughs> I was not giving Lizzo in high school. Like I was giving like, you know, a sensible, like weird, fun kid, mm -hmm. <laughs> but like kind of popular. Mm -hmm. Like I was, oh, yeah. you know, That's like- what I'm wondering, you were yeah. kind of popular. I, I guess, yeah, I was a little popular. you were funny. And yeah, like, I was, yeah. yeah, I'm funny. Yeah. You know, I, I went to the parties, you know. <laughs> I didn't, but I didn't go to the, I didn't go to the popular kid parties mm. all the time. Like, you know, like so, Chameleonic, like I felt mm -hmm. like I could, I really mm -hmm. had so many different groups of friends. Mm -hmm. Like I was friends with the girls, I was friends with like the Beckys, I was friends with <laughs> the theater, the theater kids, I was friends with the black girls, mm -hmm. I was, you know, like I could, I could walk into the cafeteria and sit at like five different tables. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I did not have like one click that like that I. Mm -hmm. like carried me through right although the theater kids did always sit together at lunch okay so back to hamilton so you're yeah, yeah, yeah. you're feeling yourself but then you're also having this experience of like i don't deserve this why am i here kind of in the rehearsals yeah i was just i, I was in over my head i did not plan on making it to broadway that soon just mm -hmm. like to be quite frank mm -hmm. i was planning this is another part. I was planning on doing this non-equity tour, and I had gotten cast in this non-equity tour, and they rescinded my offer. Like two months, two months before I booked Hamilton, three months before, the producer sent me an email and was like, "Hey, we changed the track around. We no longer need you." And I was just like, "Damn, this industry is." Cut was that through. right before you? Right before I booked Hamilton. Oh wow! So when I tell you I was in my manifestation bag, like. I had, I thought that I had made it with this big, like I was going on tour straight out of college. I thought that I had made it. And then the rug got pulled. It was pulled. a test. It, it sure was because as soon as that rug got pulled beneath me, I was like, you know what? My manager at the time texted me and said, don't even worry about it. Just focus all your attention into Hamilton. And I literally did that. I was like, I was at Lulu. <laughs> I don't want to be talking about Lulu no, so much. It's so good. <laughs> 
I was literally at Lululemon when I got the email about my offer being rescinded from that contract. So I was literally in the basement doing inventory crying. Like, damn, I don't have this job anymore. Like, they just really took this from me. Mm-hmm. And then a couple months later, I got an even better job and I didn't have to leave New York. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, maybe there is, you know, a method to all this madness. I've been singing all this time since I was a little kid and I still to this day feel so insecure about my singing. I just felt like I wasn't talented enough to be in the space. I also just felt like the fat kid on the team, just to keep it like frank. Like, on the, in the cast. Yeah, mm-hmm. and not to mention like this Why was- Why did a, you feel that way? If I, if I could look at a picture of me and other, the other company members, I think objectively I was the biggest person on the stage. I'd arrived at such a place of true hatred for being big, being fat at any given point. Also, I had lost 100 pounds prior to that. Like towards the end of college, I was like knee deep in an eating disorder. Hmm. I was not eating. I was going to work at Lululemon, going to work at Equinox, another like, my world was wrapped around working out. So I was 350 pounds when Mm. I got to New York City. Mm. And I was, I think at my lightest, like 210. Mm-hmm. 220 mm-hmm. which for me is like light like very like I've I don't I truly that's an unhealthy weight for your body I don't know I don't even know I don't even know what an unhealthy weight is for me you know like I've been morbidly obese since I was a kid like the doctors told me I was morbidly obese as a young person I've been trying to lose weight my whole life for as long as I can remember I've been trying to lose weight so when I think about what is a healthy weight I have no idea what that is mm-hmm. because when I was losing weight, I was doing it in such an extreme way, like, and then also in the last two years, I've gained back some weight. I don't know, I honestly don't, I don't get on scales anymore. I feel like I'm healthy now. Um, and my therapist gave me some beautiful language when I went to the doctors, when I, we were like, you know, I talked to my therapist about everything. We were getting prepared for me to go to the doctor. Because it's traumatic at the doctor about yeah. that. Yeah. So she was like, you know, you can just say to them, you don't want to get on the scale. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? She's like, yes, your your appointment. Like, you are paying for this. And my therapist said that to me, and I was like, bitch, I really do pay you to do something. Like, this is, <laughs> you dropping gems. Like, it was, it was good. Like, I was just like, okay, yeah. There are more important numbers than the numbers on the scale. So I don't, I don't know if I was at a healthy weight, but I know when I booked Hamilton, I was, I was in some of the most, uh, I was in the most abusive relationship with myself that I have been in mm. yet. Like, I was not eating enough. I was working out way too much. There was never a time where I was, like, low energy. I was giving, I was giving, you know, um, but I was, it was, I was pushing through it, Mm -hmm. And also coupled with, we talked about worth earlier. It was so hard for me to internalize that I deserved to be there Mm -hmm. because my idea of myself was that I was this fat kid. I was still seeing myself as a high schooler. It can't, it can't be possible that I'm this fierce. Like, I must have swindled them. You know, that like, imposter syndrome of like, I'm, they are going, they're going to find out that I am not who I, you know, convinced them to be. The pattern is that I'm constantly comparing my worth to the, my environment and the people around me based on like, the feeling of feeling like the fat kid on the team. Mm. I spoke about that feeling as if it was so objectively true. But I even I'm even now I'm like I don't know if I was the biggest person on that stage at that time. I I can assure you that I you could not have told me that that was not the truth. Mm. But now even looking back on that time, I'm like I think 
I felt like I booked it because I had lost all this weight. Mm -hmm. Like, I I literally said to people, if I didn't lose this weight, I never would have booked Hamilton. When you sign a contract that says you will not gain weight, like that's part of the contract that you sign. I think that's what the tension was because I knew that that was in the contract and I knew that I had lost all this weight and I was the thinnest and smallest I'd ever been that I, I just knew that, that was not something I was gonna be able to maintain. I'm like embarrassed to say this, but I think that my Hamilton contract was the first and only contract I've ever read like front to back. Right. You know, cause I was just so excited yeah. to get in the room and so nervous that I, you know, that I wanted to make sure I knew everything mm -hmm. and make sure I did everything right. So I read, I read through my whole thing and I remember getting to that line and I've, talk, I've talked about this so much, like just how much anxiety that one little line brought me. Mm -hmm. I felt like I would make it on Broadway, my dreams could, would come true and I would magically just feel better. You know, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't remember all of my childhood trauma because that was, as a child, I had placed these goals as a thing to get me out of the place that I was in. Mm. So I wasn't worried about the things behind me while I was running to get there because I was running to get there. So when I got there and all that shit I was running from was there waiting for me, I was just so disappointed and just beside myself that I was even still navigating these things that I thought that I had cured. Mm -hmm. Like I thought that the cure for my insecurities about my body was losing weight. And why do I still see myself as this fat person? And why is this fat person, the, why is that so bad? Like what does that mean to me? And not to mention I, I had started dating my partner like around the same time that I was in Hamilton, like that was also something that I felt like not prepared for. This beautiful person, you know, made themselves known in my life and I was just in a place of such insecurity. I felt like I wasn't ready for anything that I was currently doing. Mm -hmm. Like what are his expectations of me? Is he expecting me to be this fierce star? This like, is he expecting limos mm -hmm. and a penthouse apartment because on my little equity ensemble contract, I was not in a penthouse apartment. I still had a roommate. Like that was also, again, my expectation mm. too, of like, I thought that I was gonna make it on Broadway and like, boom. boom. I think the through line is this fear and anxiety of being seen. And then at that moment, everybody was seeing me. You know, I had people from high school, people from elementary school, friends of my parents, just like everybody wanted to talk to me and congratulate me, which was so, so nice, but so overwhelming, so deeply overwhelming because I was, I felt like I was just in over my head. And that's something yeah. that I still wrestle with of like, maybe, maybe one day I will feel better. You know, that place feels like so far from where I am. And I think a lot of times when I talk about mental health or when I talk about my eating disorder. A lot of times I talk about my eating disorder in the past tense, but I'm very much so in the middle of it, in the mid, like smack dab in the middle of it. And it's, it's hard. I just feel like I'm in this place of conflict with who I've, who I've been, like who I have had to be, who I thought I was going to be and like who I am right now.
Like mm. I keep my, I feel like my anxiety is about who I'm gonna be. Like I wanna be this great person. I wanna have all these goals. I have all this, I see myself in so many places doing so, so many things. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my depression is all that stuff that's weighing right. me it's down. It's in your body. It's yes, yeah. the memories of things, the memories of abuse. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. We wanted to take a moment to remind you that if you're moved by what you're hearing, you can watch the video version of this interview on our YouTube channel and learn more about how you can join in our mental health awareness campaign with Spring Health by following us on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health. Now back to this episode. There's, there's, some, there's some like horrible people that are like, they is, is, is not singular. It's plural and it's incorrect. Like, live, I've actually had people talk, like, talk to me on Instagram like that, like, make comments like that where they're like, and I'm just like, hmm, do I drag you? Do I curse you out? Or do I literally just ignore this? You know, mm -hmm. like, how do you? But at the same time, you think about when I, when I start to get into that place, when people start getting into semantics and like language, I'm like, no, they, them is actually both singular and plural. Mm -hmm. I am both one person and everything. Mm -hmm. We use they, them pronouns so easily when we're not thinking about it. Like when you don't know somebody's name or you don't, where you see somebody across the street and you're like, oh, look at them. Mm -hmm. Oh, they look cute. You know, like, but then mm -hmm. all of a sudden someone tells you their pronouns are they, them, and it's like. Mm -hmm. is, so is that a new part of the, your journey, the, gen, the yeah. gender identity? Yeah, it's been a new, not a new thing, but it's been something that I'm more comfortable talking about outside of <laughs> me and my head alone. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I changed my pronouns publicly, like I came, came out as non-binary. I have such judgments about coming out. Um, about like, why do we even have to do it? Mm -hmm. Like as queer people, like, mm -hmm. why is it my job to mm -hmm. literally alert you that I am not what you think I am? Like, what is that about? And I think when I, when I got on Broadway, that was also some other pressure of like, continuity in my like branding as an actor mm -hmm. of like, before I was, before I was like in the spotlight of like being in Hamilton, I, you know, was fierce and fab everywhere. Like I would, there wasn't really continuity in my presentation via my social medias and my things. But I got some feedback in college um, where people were just saying like my presentation was confusing. Um, the people were telling me that people were calling my outfits and my clothes like costumes. Like they, people were saying like, I wanna see what's underneath all this. Like, what are you like without all this? And that really made, again, added to that feeling of, oh, well, maybe I am being fake. Maybe this isn't actually me. And now I, I even still to this day have like a resistance to makeup because I feel like it somehow makes me fake, mm. right? Like I feel like somehow it makes me feel like I'm performing something that I don't want to be. And I, you know, I got my little liner in my bag in case I wanted to put something, you know, like, I, and I never have, I've never thrown out my makeup. And sometimes I'm like, should I beat my face today? I'm like, hmm, I don't want to. It feels like, it doesn't, just doesn't feel like something that's in my practice. So I came out as non-binary before I really became comfortable wearing my, my trans identity. I did not really see myself as a trans person in the trans community because in my understanding, my very, um, 
you know, juvenile understanding of what it means to be trans is like man to fem man to woman. Like that's mm -hmm. what I thought trans was. Um, and about, it was like a year ago or two years ago, I think it was a year ago, last summer, we were in LA, my partner and I. We were just talking about the definition of being transgender and like being transgender being like you are somebody who's born in a body that you do not identify with the gender that was assigned to. I resisted my transness because I did not see myself as trans in a traditional sense. Mm -hmm. I thought that if I'm, I'm, I'm not trans because I want my penis, literally, like breaking it down, like simply put, mm -hmm. like, but I also want some titties. You can hold more than one title and role and, and also like, oh wait, these are also all just roles? How did somebody assign me these things before I could even talk, mm -hmm. before I could experience myself? Like when we break it down like that of like there are seven million billion people on the planet and we're all supposed to fit into these two boxes. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to the ways in which I contorted myself to be successful mm -hmm. and also the shame that I feel on the other side of that. Right. Like I feel shameful for for not putting prioritizing myself or whatever. Like I feel shameful for bending so much of myself for what for who mm. you know and i think that's where some of the rage comes from too of like i'm so angry at you for making me change mm. but the freedom is they didn't nobody made me do anything i've i am a grown person and i've made some grown people decisions when i was in chicago i did an eating disorder treatment um it was an outpatient treatment center so i didn't like check in and like go i didn't call i didn't I didn't call out of work. I was trying to navigate like doing this, this intensive therapy and going to work every day. So it was like, I think it was something like nine hours of treatment every week on top of the like eight show weeks that I was doing. Um, and so I've naturally gained a little weight back. Um, and I remember just being like literally losing sleep at night, thinking about having to go back to that costume and like potentially have to talk to someone about letting the costume out or getting new costumes because if i think about if i think about it from a production standpoint it's like costumes cost money if they make a costume they can't just they can't just make new costumes every time you gain weight but then that even that thought i'm like that's assuming that i'm not working for a company that has money mm -hmm. you know if i'm you know, like, or that I'm not worthy of like, or that having to do that. Like, exactly. <laughs> or that it, it, I think it, again, affirms my, my core belief that I am a burden. Mm -hmm. The core belief that I am so desperately trying to shake up and release mm -hmm. and like work through. When I'm like, oh my God, I gained weight and they're going to have to do something about that. Mm -hmm. I'm immediately like, I'm going to get fired because I'm fat. Okay, how much of that is a rational fear and how much of that is an irrational fear? I got back to there, they realized my costumes didn't fit and they just gave me a different costume. Nothing happened. No one said anything. There was no nothing. So over the last year, I really have not, I did not do the thing that, I, that I, a lot of people were doing, which was like really committing to their physical shape during quarantine. Like the home gym equipment going off the, mm. like, 
I feel like, you know, my Instagram ads changed to like Zumba at home, dance aerobics at home. Like everything was like workout at home, workout at home. And I was like, I don't want to work out at home. I'm actually sad at home. I don't want to move my body in here. I don't want to sweat on the floor. I have to clean up my own sweat off this floor. Like I want to go to a gym. And if I can't go to the gym, then I'm not working out. Like I had such, anyway. So in the last year, I gained my little quarantine weight as, as people have. <laughs> so thinking about going back to work, like going back to Hamilton, I'm like, I'm not who y'all hired anymore. Like I literally am just not who, who y'all hired, both with my gender and with my body. And there's like part of me that feels like super embarrassed. Like I let myself go or something, you know, like, there is a part of me that feels that, but the part of me that actually knows the truth of like, oh no, bitch, you just been eating. You just been eating good, you know, and hanging out and having fun. Like there's, it's the part of me that's just like, you have to lose weight to go back to work. Like I'm right now resisting getting a gym membership so bad. I just actually tried to go to Crunch to do a one day trial, literally left, that was on Monday, literally left out of there crying and walked home. Mm. Because I walked in there and saw all the, the West Hollywood white gays with hard mm. bodies mm. looking at me with my nails done and my little leggings and my t-shirt looking like, oh, I'm not in the right spot, actually. I'm actually not supposed to be here. And immediately my first thought is, I did, I'm wrong, right? Like I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm disheveled, I've let myself go, this has to do with my work. I would be more successful if I was skinnier. People would like me more if I was skinnier, like all this. But in this, the frustrating part is that I can, I, I had more sex after losing weight than I had before losing weight, objectively true. Like I would, I literally got more. I got more responses on Grinder after I lost weight. Like I would message people on Grinder when I was fat, and people would dead block me. Like like block. People's profiles say no fats, no fats. Like that is real shit. So it's do I really believe I wouldn't have booked Hamilton if I was fat? Like if I was at my heaviest? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I really I really cannot tell you if that is a narrative that I've made up or if that is the truth. Mm -hmm. We didn't even talk about the Black Lives Matter thing with mm -hmm. them. Right. Like I, I have very strong opinions about the way they, they navigated everything last summer. I felt like for a company, ooh, my, vo my voice is like quaking even talking about it. I felt like for a company that has made such, has become so successful by hiring and putting these these brown folks on a stage these people of color on a stage and saying this is what america looks like like this hamilton an american musical you've made all this money off of these people and at the at, at our like maybe this is just me but at our lowest like as a people for me that's this is the lowest i've ever felt as a black person was last summer the lowest i've ever felt in regards to like what the fuck is going on in the world the anger, the sadness, the fear that I felt last summer was unlike anything I've ever felt in my whole life. And the fact that this company that has spent so much time calling us a family at all these meetings, it's like they didn't make it, they didn't make any statement for like six or seven days. And I was like, Lululemon posted a statement. <laughs> Why is it that they made a statement before a musical literally centering black folks, hmm. centering people of color? How is that possible? 
I was so pissed. I was pissed. And I was like, I'm not going back there. I cannot go back on that stage because y'all don't care about me. It's clear that y'all up top, y'all producers, people with all the money, the white men that we were talking about, the white men that run the shit, y'all don't care about me. That's how I was feeling. That's what I was seeing. And it's like, you see the same thing about this, like the pride shit. It's like all of a sudden, everybody wants to put a rainbow in their thing for 30 days. Mm -hmm. Outside of them 30 days, they don't give a fuck about no trans people. Excuse my language, but mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like a puppet. I feel mm -hmm. like a branding tool. I feel like a marketing strategy. And to be reduced to that mm -hmm. and to see that and then also see the work that they, you know, because everybody's been doing anti-racist stuff now. All the corporations are doing things. They're all getting themselves together. So it's like, they, they've done their things, but it's like, is that enough? Is it going to be different when I get back there? Are y'all going to misgender me? Are people gonna have side comments about my, about my weight? Whether it change, you know? Are people gonna talk about my body? Like, I don't, I actually don't know what it's going to be like when I get back there. And that is actually the reason I feel committed to going back there. My intention is to show up as who I am. I don't want to be an activist. I really don't. <laughs> I really don't want to be an activist. I want to be an actor. I'm not hired to come and like educate white people. I'm not hired to come educate anybody on gender identity. I don't actually need to explain what my, like my pronouns are they them, get them correct. My name is not the same as it was when I left here. Get that correct. It's just like, get it correct. That's how I feel. I'm like, I'm going to show up and I'm going to be myself and I don't want to hear no shit about it. Regardless of any insecurity, regardless of anything that I deal with, I'm still deserving of the job that I have because I worked for it. Like I earned it. Somebody tweeted the other day, um, the price to get any actor to do anything on stage has gone up. And mm -hmm. I'm just like, I'm with that energy. Yeah. Whatever that is, I'm with that. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's true. Like, I think, yeah, like we've just, I think, Collectively, we've gotten comfortable working at home <laughs> like, and designing what our safe space looks like. That it's like, if yeah. I can make a living at home in the safety of my home, why would I leave that to go be unsafe someplace, you know? Mm -hmm. Why would I leave that to have to change who I am? Like, right. I might as well just find a space where I can just be myself. Mm -hmm. And there's no telling that that space is not safe yet. When do you feel the most vulnerable? When I have to like ask for what I need in a um, like intimate way, not like sex. I mean like when I have to say like, I need space for my partner or when I have to say like, you hurt my feelings. Like literally just talking about my needs makes me feel very, very vulnerable. Specifically my partner, my, I'm in a, in a racial relationship. Um, and naturally, as a black person dating a white person, there's gonna be some things you need to talk about. And there's also gonna be some, some somebody's gonna say the wrong thing. Um, most likely the white person. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, most likely the white person. Um, but it's, it's really, I feel very vulnerable when I have to talk to my partner about like whiteness. When, when like, when white supremacy makes itself known in my, in my interpersonal relationships, mm. I feel so disarmored. I work under the assumption that every white person is racist. 
just by nature of what race is. We're talking about the construct of race, not like people, like talking mm -hmm. about literally benefiting off of mm -hmm. the, the structure that mm -hmm. is racism. If I'm walking off that, walking through life off of that assumption, it's like I, I can only hold you accountable for you. I can't ask you to take responsibility for every white person that's hurt me or said something wild to me. I can't also ask you to fix that system. So I have to navigate when something like that comes up, like I get so viscerally upset and sometimes I can put the weight of all of the white, all of the, all of my upset with the structure onto one person. It makes, it just makes me super uncomfortable to, to be in relationship with somebody that I love so much and to have to say like, you're still white, you know, <laughs> and you are still, you, 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 you know, you still have a different experience than me in this world. Mm. At the top of the pandemic, when we were like, you know, quarantined, like really intensely, like even scared to walk out of the house, go to the grocery store, we were just in the house all day, every day. If something came up or I was upset, my initial reaction is to leave. Like, don't operate from a place of heightened emotion. Neutralize the situation, take a walk, come back and then deal once I am like gathered and like have my thoughts together. If I don't take that space in the moment of conflict or a moment of like being triggered or something, I can be really hot-headed. Like I can talk, you know, my voice lowers a little bit, lower, lowers a little bit. I, my gestures get a little tight when I'm tight. Like, you know, like I get mad. Is me having an attitude or being upset or angry aggressive? We had to really get clear of like him being able to like see himself as a white person, mm. right? Because he is a good white person. Mm -hmm. I felt like he didn't have um, an understanding. Of, there was His a cultural, position, like, yes, the there's a cultural barrier, almost like a language barrier mm -hmm. of like, I'm talking like this and I'm angry, but I'm not angry. I'm not like, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm yelling, but I'm not yelling at you, yeah. you know? Like, I'm loud and I'm yeah. angry and I'm expressive and I'm triggered and I'm upset. If I walk away, I'm shutting down. And if I'm talking like this, then all of a sudden it's too much. It's aggressive. It's, it's what it like. How do we resolve conflict if I can't just be and speak freely? Well, just cultural differences, like right. straight talk to me feels like a very black thing. Taking ownership of your reactions and being authentic and like, I just grew up where people yelled at each other. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that I'm yelling at my partner and that needs to be normalized. I'm saying I cannot, sh again, I cannot shrink myself and take your white shit and then say, I'm not going to have a reaction. I'm just going to tell you that this was the shit you gave mm -hmm. me and give it back. Like, I can't. you said some white shit and I have an attitude and I'm leaving the house, I'm coming back in 20 minutes, an hour, and then maybe we could talk about it again. What's an example of white shit? Ooh, okay. I, I'm trying to, I'm opening a coffee shop in West Hollywood specifically because there's no black owned coffee shops in West Hollywood. I've been talking to this white lady from the city of West Hollywood about this space that I want. She emails me back a list of reasons why the past coffee shops have all failed. Instead of sending me the property manager's number, I came home like, babe, look what this white bitch said to me. 
he he was so busy in his work that he turned around, looked at him, and was like, "Oh damn! Like I can't believe she said that to you." And that was not the reaction I wanted. I wanted him to be like, "Yeah, fuck that white lady." He was not my black girlfriend that I should have gone to. He's not giving me the reaction that I wanted, but at least he can listen. So I just kept venting, and I turned around, and he's just on the he's like back on the computer. Nobody is going to be everything you need them to be at every moment you need them. Mm -hmm. What's your um, favorite part of your body? Ooh, my legs. Why? Because my ass is attached to them. <laughs> <laughs> I present as this fierce bad bitch, almost as if I'm like manifesting big, big bad bitch energy. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and at the end of the day, I'm half the time I'm posting from home. So it's like, hell yeah, I'm a bad bitch. I'm at home. Mm. You know, like, <laughs> like I've talked about it so much of like, I feel, I feel so comfortable in my body at home. I'm naked all the time at home. I've been sleeping naked since I was a little kid. Mm. I don't like clothes. I don't like what clothes do to my body. Mm. Like, I think I look better naked. Mm. Like actually, because I'm like, oh, there's my waist. Okay, there's the there's those lines that the jeans ruined, mm. you know, because I'm like, I want the I want the spandex that's in the women's jeans, right? But the waist is not high enough and I have a penis. So it's like, mm. this don't fit. Mm -hmm. It's not this is not the right, this not it. But then you get a men's jean and it's like the cut is all wrong, the spandex is not enough lycra in it, it's not stretchy enough, it's not holding my ass the way I want it to. It's not giving me the lift that I, you know? So it's like, you get in where you fit in. <laughs> when do you feel the most beautiful? When I'm by myself. <laughs> like, when I'm not like, thinking about myself in relation to anything else. Like when I can really like, sit still and get comfortable in my body is when I feel the most beautiful. Like in stillness and quiet, I can find it. And last question. <laughs> Why in your body, in your skin, in your journey, why is it a good place to be? Dealing with like my anxiety and my depression and all those things that also live in my body has made me feel like the visitor here, right? Like, mm -hmm. I have felt like such a visitor in my own body at times. And I think the more I've reclaimed ownership of it, the more I feel like at home in it. Mm -hmm. Like this is mine. This is actually the only thing that's mine. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like in any, all these mm -hmm. other possessions, all this other shit I own, like, Somebody could steal it, it could break, you know, like things leave. That's the, that's the point of things, you know, you use them and then they break, they, they, you know, like, or they age or what if it's, you know, they, not everything is meant to last forever, except your body, it's with you till the very end, you know, mm -hmm. it's the one thing you have at the top and the one thing you got at the end. So I just, I, mm -hmm. I have an appreciation for it. It's powerful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> How do you feel right now? I feel good. I feel um, 
like anytime I get to like process out loud with people and have people share, you know, the weight of it all. And I don't have to, I feel like I just don't have to carry it all by yeah. myself all mm. the time. Mm. You know, like, and also it affirms this new belief that I am not too much, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, that I am not a burden. We hope you were inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa. And me, Lily. If you were touched by this story, please take a moment to share this episode with any friends or family who could benefit from understanding that they are enough as they are. And if you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, please help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Thank you again to Spring Health for supporting us in bringing our What's Underneath Pride series to life. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health for more details on how you can be involved in sharing your story as part of our mental health awareness campaign and support one another in feeling less alone in our struggles. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There's no finding oneself when glossing over the truth.